0: Good evening. As mentioned last lecture, the collapse of the old world shtetl and the subsequent rise of new non Torah observant movements in Western Europe, we illustrate that the ideas, practices, and debates of the period of that period, of the Enlightenment and post Napoleon leads to the current denominational structure in our day. But to be frank, that is a little bit incomplete. Because today, when we discuss Eastern Europe, and the Haskalah in Eastern Europe, we'll get the full picture. The Napoleonic Enlightenment, which emancipated the Jews of Western Europe, did not reach Russia. Of course, as mentioned last lecture, Russia was attacked by Napoleon, but in 1812, in the winter of 1812, Napoleon lost most of his army in Russia, and um, subsequently, any measures which had been taken to that point were pushed back. The largest concentrations of of Jews in the beginning of the 19th century was in Eastern Europe. Approximately 40% 40% of worldwide Jewry and the vast majority of Ashkenazic Jewry lived in what is called the Pale of Settlement. The Polish partitions, which happened between the years of 1772 and 1815, totally changed the fabric of Russian Jewry. Because until that point, Jews in Russia were relatively a small minority. But starting in 1772, 750,000 more Jews were added from what was Poland-Lithuania into the Russian Empire. When Catherine the Great first uh, accumulated all of these new Jews, she did not treat them um, negatively. She gave actually some opportunities to be part of Russian Orthodox society, and she levied um, taxes on the Jews, but not a- extreme. And if a Jew would have got forbidden converted to Russian Orthodoxy, they would be, have full permission to do anything and everything and be part of society. Catherine included them under the, under the rights and laws of the Charter of Towns in 1782. And this presented certain benefits to the Jews who started to become economically successful. Consequently, the Russian Orthodox middle class started to clamor against the Jews. So, accordingly, just three years later, in 1785, <clears throat> Catherine declared the Jews are officially foreigners with foreigners' rights. This reestablished a separate identity for Jews in the Russian Empire, and Catherine slowly but surely pushed the Jews farther and farther out of the Russian economic circle, and in 1791 they established the Pale of the Settlement. From 1791 until 1915 the majority of Jews living in Eastern Europe were confined by all of the czars of Russia to an area called the Pale of the Settlement. The Pale of the Settlement literally means the borders of the settlement. The Pale comprised approximately twenty percent of the former Russian Empire, which included the the present-day Lithuania, Belarus, White Russia, Moldova, Ukraine, and parts of Western Russia. A number of cities were in the Pale, where in the actual areas of the Pale, Jews were excluded from living in. A limited uh, uh, amount of Jews were allowed to live in the cities of the Pale, not just the shtetls. Uh, But later, more and more Jews were pushed out of the cities of the Pale, and Jews were, were living at the time of Catherine in Moscow, and St. Petersburg were expelled from both Moscow and St. Petersburg. In comparison, when Poland was split in 1772, part of Poland went to the Austro Hungarian Empire. That part of Poland became known as Galicia. In Galicia, the Jews fared a lot better, especially in the late 19th century under the, the, the Emperor Franz Josef. Franz Joseph, the Jews did fine. They were economically sound. That's because they did not have constant economic laws against them. They had freedom at some level, it's not the freedoms we have today, they had freedoms at some level to partake in the economy of the Austro Hungarian Empire, which is why Galician Jews were much more advanced socioeconomically than Russian Jews. Taxes doubled again on Jews in 1794. And once again, Catherine reiterated in 1794 that Jews are not Russians. We are not citizens of Russia. Jews are different. We are separate. We are not part of the country. Just to jump ahead a hundred years, by 1886, not only were Jews not part of the country, there were severe um, quotas on Jews reaching higher education. In The Pale, that uh, was limited to 10%. In Outside the Pale, 5% of the uh, colleges were allowed Jews. And in Moscow and St. Petersburg and Kiev, only 3% of the, of the university population was allowed to be Jews. Now to jump way ahead, during World War I, the Pale lost its dominance of Jewish, the Jewish population. That's because when the Germans came marching in, the Jewish population ran into the inter, interior of Russia and went farther than they were before. Of course, the Russian Empire at the time was on the brink. And in 1917, with the provisional government, with the February government of 1917, before the communist revolution, the Pale was officially abolished uh, with the government decree on abo- abolition of the confessional and national restrictions, and the Pale with its Jewish population was abolished. Also, at the end of the war, World War One. This is jumping ahead, but it's very important one of the most remarkable things happened. And that is that mo- a large part of the of what was the pale Settlement, including Poland and Lithuania, were ripped out of the Russian Empire. That area included approximately 4.5 million Jews who were saved between 1917 and 1939 from communism, and including the vast majority of all yeshivas. Because had the you know, Trotsky was forced with Lenin to sign a deal in the middle to get out to get out. They signed, they gave away to Germany, though Germany didn't get it. it was Poland and Lithuania, Latvia? Had those countries remained under the Russian Empire, maybe we we'll do think about this, they would have been communists starting in nineteen essentially by nineteen twenty the, the, the war was largely over. They would have been communists. The nineteen years between World War One and World War Two were years where these Shivas were dominant, and they were able to escape to both America, to Israel. Of course, the Mir Yeshiva, we'll talk about it in a different lecture, was able to get to Shanghai. If that, those countries had not been given up in 1917, almost all of Ashkenazi Jewry would have been under the Communists by 1920. By hashgachah, by divine providence, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia had very few Jews. They were taken out of the Russian Empire just when Communism. Came to the front. Now, going back to the Pale of Settlement, you would think in the Pale of the Settlement, always bleary and always gloomy. There were Martin Gilbert, the English historian, if you look at his uh, illustrated uh, uh, history of the world, it's an interesting book. So he points out that in, in no province in the Pale had less than 14% of the Jews on relief, <coughs> and in Lithuania, in hum- Ukraine, there was as much as 22% of the, uh, of the population was on support, but they were totally, utterly supported internally by the Jewish communities, and the Jews supported themselves. Among the charitable societies organized by Jews this is a quote from Gilbert: "Among the charitable societies organized by Jews in the Pale were those to supply poor students with clothes, soldiers with kosher food, the poor with free medical treatment, poor brides with dowries, and orphans with technical education." They had a tremendous social welfare system. They took care of one of each other without the the federal government forcing them to tax each other. Jews took care of each other, others. An interesting thing is, if you look in the pale, there were tekanas, there were decrees, no conversion. Now, at first glance, you say, why no conversion? (coughs) Because amongst the few conversions that were in the 19th century, to convert to Judaism in Catholic Poland, or Russian Orthodox, Russia, or Lithuania, was a death sentence. It was illegal. It was illegal. The famous Graf Pataki, was a, one of the Russian noblemen, he was killed for con- converting to Judaism, and others as well. Basically, it's like converting today in Saudi Arabia to Christianity to Judaism, it would kill you. In all of Catholic Europe, it was forbidden under heresy laws to convert to Judaism. The same thing in Russian Orthodoxy. But there's another reason why conversion was banned. That's because if you were a Russian peasant and you weren't making it, do you know what happened to you? If you got sick, you died on the street. If you couldn't support yourself, you know what happened to you? You starved to death. Well, if they looked at the Jews, the Jews took care of each other. You know, like there's a famous story in New York. It's happened more than once. I mean, You know, first thing, you know, you see someone on the, on the tribe row, row the cars, their cars, Broken, and he's, he's wearing a yarmulke. And a religious Jew, Jew pulls up to, to help him out, and he says Shalom Aleichem. And the guy has a Puerto Rican accent, and he says, Oh, thanks so much for coming My car is broken. And he sees the guy in the yarmulke, which synagogue do you down? There? Oh, no, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm Catholic. So what are you wearing yarmulke? So I know that if I get stuck, I put on one of these. So I get the car stopped. And <laughs> right? So you know the Puerto Ricans know this in New York, they want to get a hand from the yarmulke. <laughs> you get, you get people stopped. The, 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 the Russian peasants knew that if they want to be taken care of you convert to Judaism you are a jew better to be to risk You know, most cases they didn't know convert some Russian peasants disappeared converted no at least I get I get a warm meal some will offer me a blanket the Jews took care of each other so there's actually no there was no there's so much of a desire to convert and it was a danger to the Jewish community that they banned conversion for many times. Also, in the parallel settlement, there were Hasidic courts with hundreds of thousands of Jews. Certainly in Poland, what's called Congressional Poland, which had, which was under Russian dominion, dominion, but less so. And we'll see, that even the Cantonist decrees were not really what's called congressional Poland. <coughs> there was the Ger Hasidim with tens of thousands, and by the beginning of the 20th century, hundreds of thousands of followers, Vizhnits there was square Hasidim, there was charcoal Alexander Hasidim, hundreds of thousands of them, but cumulatively millions of Hasidim, in Vilna, and in Kovna, in, Kovno, in the other cities of Lithuania, there were the Misnak, Victoria centers, that is how the 19th century starts. But in the 19th century, in Russia, although the Enlightenment would not get there, Haskalah would start to creep in, and that would permanently... Change the world of Russia. Because when the 19th century in Russia starts, 99% of Russian Jews are Torah observant. 99% approximately of Russian Jews are Torah observant. That doesn't mean they're all tzaddikim, they're all pious. Certainly, they have their vices and foibles, but on a outward level, if you looked in the street, they were Torah observant. Some were more religious, some were less but ideologically, sociologically, you would call them Orthodox. That was not the case by far 100 years later. What was Haskalah? Haskalah comes from the word Sechel, intellect. It was called the Jewish Enlightenment. It was an ideological and social movement that developed in Eastern European Jews, In the 18th and 19th centuries, (coughs) that advocated adopting Enlightenment values, pressing for better integration into European society, and increasing education in secular studies, Hebrew language and Yiddish, and Jewish history. (coughs) In certain senses, Haskalah was an extension of the 18th-century European Enlightenment, but it was essentially concerned with, with with Jews. Essentially. Haskalah tried to exploit the Jews to new possibilities in a world that they were trying to create. Leaders and partisans of the Haskalah movement were called Maskilim. It was a relatively vigorous and dangerous movement, if you ask me, until the rise of the nationalistic movements in the late, in the late uh, 1880s. As long as Jews lived in segregated communities, the shtetls, the, the pale. And as long as social intercourse with Gentile neighbors <coughs> was relatively limited, usually from the outside, the most important figure and the role model of all was the rabbi. If you wanted to know the structure, the hierarchy of 19th century, the 20th century Russian Jewry, certainly in Lithuania, certainly in the Hasidic courts, where, where did it all end up? Whether it was the rabbi, the domagoyes, there are the key the leaders all of all this system. And every Jewish kid in the town, if you'd ask them, what do you want to be? Like today, you better a kid, what do want to be? I want to be in a rocket gym. I want to be a policeman. I want, to, I want to be in the Air Force in Silicon Valley. I want to be Steve Jobs or Sergey Brin or something of the sort. In those days, thank you, I always wonder I'm actually allergic to this class because somehow or other I always get sick around these, these classes. <laughs> but I think it's just the winter for <laughs> <Okay>. call me after <clears> the girl. <throat> Haskalah tried to break that. They wanted the Jews to come out to the world. They tried to change Judaism. Haskalah, of course, it starts in 19th century Germany, but German Haskalah soon gives way to mass assimilation and conversion, as discussed last lecture, and to reform. And what's called Haskalah in Germany dies. However, the movement will spread to uh, Eastern Europe. Now, the difference between reformed Judaism and Haskalah is as follows. Reform tried to create the classic assimilationist Jew. It was unlikely that most reformed Jews, You can read the liturgy, as I mentioned last lecture, did not imagine their great-grandchildren being Jewish. They didn't imagine. It wasn't part of it, and if it didn't happen, it didn't bother them. There is very little Judaism about reformed Judaism. It was an accommodation. It was about some having some Jewish rights. Haskalah was Jewish culture. It attempted to redefine Jewish life. Jewish life. A reformed Jew was a a German first, as mentioned last time. First a German, then a Jew. Judaism was not focused on. Judaism was relegated. Haskalah tried to create what's called a secular Jew. Thus, secular Haskalah laid claim to the Bible, biblical literature, studying Jewish history and historiography. It also contested the traditional vision of, of a Jewish future, with a revolt on song that was irreverent to the Jewish past, irreverent, completely irreverent to a Jewish past, and largely non-believing of a Jewish future. It didn't care that much about the grandchildren, but it wanted to focus on the culture of Judaism. And we'll discuss said in mind. Where does the Haskalah start? Well, if you remember, Galitzia is by the Austro Hungarian Empire, and that was taken over by the Austro Hungarian. You know, I think I want to mention this that Galicia had, it was Poland, which was taken over by Austro Hungary. So in the Poland, and afterwards came back to Poland, my grandparents, all four of them <coughs> were Polish Jews, and they used to always say that the world was on top was Poland, below that was Galicia, and the lowest was Hungary. So when I, when I got married to my wife, <laughs> so my wife's grandfather was from a very Lithuanian home, it was a rabbinic home in Lithuania, but her grandmother came from a Hungarian home. And my wife was telling over what my, my grandparents used to say that Poland's on the top, and Galicia's in the middle, and Hungary is in on the bottom. She said that's funny because in Hungary I learned that like, Hungary was on the top, Galicia's in <laughs> the middle, <laughs> Poland was on the bottom. But Galicia was always in the middle, and Galicia was right next to Germany, and the first place. Where the masculine would infiltrate would be Galicia, and not only because Galicia was proximity-wise closer to it, but it was culturally closer to it, and it had a middle class because Galicia, as mentioned, was not Russia, and they had wealth, they had a more of a wealthy class, and they were more open to be absorbed into society. So, in certain towns, mainly Brody, Lemberg, which is Lvov, <coughs> and Tarnopol. Where there was a Jewish social and economic elite, including several mercantile and banking families, they supported a young Huzgala movement. And the beneficiaries of this movement were mostly the few college students that were there in their 20s and 30s. Regular meetings were held in the homes of infamous individuals, such as Nachman Krochmal and Dober Ginsburg and Brody, and they, wrote in several journals what the masculine were very good at was propaganda, they disseminated, they were writers. And of course, if you, you, you have newspapers, especially in those days, if you, it's unbelievable, people come to me, even, you know, you can, just for an example, if you ever meet a, 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 a Christian, or a non-Jew, who doesn't know that much about the Middle East, doesn't know that much, if all they read is moveon.org, or the New York Times, they'll get a very distorted. No, they won't ever understand Israel. Why? They're reading the wrong p- p- publications. They're getting a jaundiced view. Well, imagine this if most of the periodicals are going to come out by the mosquito in the beginning, right, and it would take a few, few decades till the religious group realized what was happening, they're going to taint the minds of others because they're creating the press. Right? I mean, I once saw a Russian textbook about World War II. As a man, what it means to grow up, and you read a Russian textbook it's in the 1970s about World War II, and you read an American textbook. Like sometimes you wonder, well, what did, which, word, which word are you reading? <laughs> it's a different, it was a different textbook. So, if so you grew up in Russia, you were reading a different textbook. Well, the masculine were controlling the press, and these people were getting out their word first. What was especially in Galicia? Especially in Galicia, what was the message of the masculine? Their main enemies, because you have to know Galicia became the home of great Hasidic groups, Babo, Bells, um, Cherko was in Galicia, and other other Hasidic groups. Their main (coughs) impetus was against the Hasidim, who were the complete opposite of the Magi, and in the beginning of the 19th century, Hasidism was spreading like wildfire. So writers such as Joseph Pearl, Joseph Pearl, his every single work was parody, was making satire and making fun of Hasidim. The Hasidim are this, and the Hasidim are that. And he wrote, he wrote a, a, a book called Megalatam Mirim, which was supposed to be, which is said to be the first modern novel in Hebrew. The first modern novel in Hebrew in eighteen nineteen, Megalatam was a book making fun of Hasidim. He wrote it under a pseudonym called Abadeh B'Patachia. And their struggle failed, In Galicia actually the Hasidim won the day, and their whole respondatei became just to fight the Hasidim, which is not that appealing, right? They had no, they, 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 they their whole thing—if you read anything—they would write. It was making fun of the Hasidim. But in Russia, it would be a different story. Russia, ah, would actually bear fruit, evil fruit. Jewish merchants from Brody. In particular, we'll be traveling to Odessa. And Odessa will become the center of the Russian Haskalah. And the the first great Russian Haskalah was called Itsek Berlevinson. Berlevinson. It was called the Russian Mendelssohn. Historians break up the Russian Haskalah into three periods up until 1840, from 1840 to 1855, and from 1855 to really when the Russian nationalistic movements, the Bund, the beginning of the communists, socialists, and Zionists would knock out Haskalah. That was between 1855 and the 1880s. In the beginning, before 1840, the Haskalah in Russia was relatively small. It was primarily located in Odessa and in Vilma, and mostly attracted extraordinarily wealthy merchants. Now. It's not surprising that the, the, the most successful Russian Jews would be most attracted by Haskalah. Because, unfortunately, you saw this in Germany as well, when you make it to Berlin, when you make it up the, the, the ladder of success, and Jews are the law of the law in Russia, they're Jids, they're, they're the Jewish swine. They're, 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 they're they are, they they the joke of, they're the butt of all jokes. They're scorned and laughed and hated. And if Haskalah could change that image a little bit, and you're successful in every business meeting you go to, you Baron Ginsburg are reminded you're a kike, you're a jiv, You're not that much different than your brothers and sisters and the shtetls. So you have an impetus to to, to, to maybe you know be more Russian want to fit in. The first people who wanted to be more Russian is because they wanted to be like everyone else. They, they didn't want to go to business meetings and be told look at your poor slovenly cousins and brothers and sisters. Hey, of course the reason they were poor and Slavali is because they were blocked out of any economic opportunity. They were knocked out of any, any shot. But the first ones who would be interested in this were people who were constantly confronted with it and that was the wealthy class. <coughs> They would sponsor it. They would they would they, they would propagate the books. But in the beginning, for the most part, the Haskalah Russia was moderate. It was almost like Mendelssohn. I mean, Mendelssohn has mentioned the last. lecture himself was an observant Jew, and Levinson was an observant Jew. He wasn't looking to break the theology of Judaism. He was only looking to finesse Judaism, make it more make Jews more Russian what well, we should know what the Tolstoy wasn't around're uh, you know, you know, you know, asking no there's no Russian but whoever to know to whatever Russian culture there was dress like Russians talk Russian don't speak Yiddish right? learn Russian trades don't wear a kippah cut off your beards and pay us. still pray still be a good Jew at home sounds familiar like said. but don't be so Jewish Don't be so Jewish maybe they'll like us. The Russians won't call us jids anymore. They'll welcome us with open arms. They'll invite us to have vodka with them. They won't even kill us at the same time. Right? <laughs> hey, that was that was the hope. Just be a little bit more Abyssalmer Russia, Russian. They weren't looking to change it. Now certain things, they came acutely against Kabbalah, sounded too irrational, so they came against Kabbalah. There was more of a criticism on certain halakhic practices. So, but they respected Torah study because Torah study was still an intellectual pursuit. There became a a romantic um, attitude attitude to the Hebrew language, which for hundreds of years was abandoned. As the sole most valued remnant of a glorious past, so the only thing that was really valuable was was the Hebrew language. And the Maskelin put a heavy emphasis on the humanity of Jews and others. Tikkun Olam, and I always thought, if you, know, if you look at Reform Judaism, even today, that there's a tremendous emphasis on Tikkun Olam. It happens to be not necessarily a problem in, in and of itself, because we should care about the whole world, that's like a good thing to care about. But there's such an emphasis, that, I, at some level I think it's because we don't want to look different. If we take care of Jews, we're, we're parochial, we're, we're focusing on Jews. If we're if all of our focus is on Darfur, nah, not that thing to care about, by the way, of course. But if, if everything is Tikkun Olam, Tikkun Olam, Tikkun Olam, they we're like everyone else, we're, we're, we're humanistic, we're caring about the entire world, we're contributing. So they wanted to have Jews having a global message, which of course it does without the Tikkun Olam focus. And they felt that the political and social and cultural environment was such that we could become full-fledged Russian citizens. Not like Catherine said, that Jews are a separate entity. Not like Catherine put us into the Pale of Settlements. And close the doors and lock, literally lock the Jews out of all of the major cities. It would be the equivalent of putting the Jews basically in Alabama and Mississippi. Nothing against those states. Maybe Louisiana. Actually, a little bit more. Louisiana and maybe a couple more states. But then, you can't live in Birmingham. You can't live in, any of, uh, you can't live in New Orleans. You can't live in any of the major cities. And when you when you are going to be selling things, you have certain taxes which the Russian, which the rest of the American population doesn't have. And, 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 you know, you can't be successful. But if maybe if we would dress like them, we would talk like them, we would act like them, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't be so chassidic for sure. Or not we'd be accepted. We'd be we'd be great. And like Galicia, the first line of attack for. The masculine or the Hasidim, because the Hasidim, the Hasidim, by in its nature, is an in insular movement. Hasidim says, "Be more Jewish." Right? You know what we call Yiddish means Jewish. To speak Yiddish, that's Yiddish. The word Yiddish means Jewish. Yeah, that's Yiddish. You dress Jewish. You live Jewish. You have cultural Judaism. It's part of our not just secular culture, but Judaism. It's part of who we are. And the Hasidim became came against the enemy now the beginning with the Misnagdim, with the yeshiva world, with the Torah class, it wasn't as cantankerous. For a couple of reasons. First of all, by 1840, up to that point, it was still heavy battle between, that's a couple of ago, between the Misnagdim and the chassidim. They had a joint enemy! And the chassidim weren't so popular in the misnagdom circles at that time. Or as I mentioned, it would take the Zionist, secular Zionism, to unite, and the communists, the secular Zionists and communists, to unite the Hasidic world and the Lithuanian world, the Misnagic world together to make a good as Israel. It would take that pressure because it's much more powerful ultimately than the Haskalah would be Zionism, secular Zionism, and Communism. That would be a, a future discussion. But the Misnagim at the time were fighting the Hasidim, so if the Misnagim were fighting the Hasidim, they can't be that bad. <laughs> they're not that bad. And now the Misnagim they're, they're 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 Kluger. They're smart. I remember I always since my bobby grew up in, in, in Poland, in the Poland, uh, she said, well in Poland they used to say, well, the, Polonies, the Lithuanian zone they're the smart ones. Well they're they're they're, they're Torah, they're intellectual, they're learning a high level of Talmud. we'll pick them. But that would change in 1840, because in 1840 the masculine tried to get the government involved. And they had help. In eighteen forty, the Minister of Education of Russia was a person named Sergei Uvarov, who had a vision of Russifying the Jews of Russia. He wished to reform the Jews by bringing them more in harmony with their surrounding society, at the same time to feed Jews from the damaging influence of the Talmud, from the damaging influence of the Talmud, which was a common refrain in the Tsar's palace. The damaging influence of the Talmud, the Talmud, almost like the and we're going back to 15 classics, of the Romans, when they began the study of the Talmud, the damaging, you can see almost in all the societies in Rome, the damaging influence of the Talmud, get to Rosh the damaging influence of the Talmud, basically giving Jews spiritual succor to be successful. Uvarov recommended having six district commissions in the pale. Which had representatives to disseminate education and culture and Russian culture, and immediately, again, remember the Pale was filled with Hasidic courts with Torah centers. It, it hit opposition. The masculine jumped for joy, but the Torah centers were so strong, and the Hasidic centers had no effect. The next thing he did was recruit recruit a young clergyman. By the name of Max Lillenthal, who at the time had a secular school in Riga, Latvia, which is now Riga, Latvia. And he told him what he would like to do is start a rabbinic seminary and an alternative plan of schools in Russia. And it would be such a benefit for Russian Jews. And Max Lillenthal said, Yeah, sounds great. I'll, uh, yes, sir, I'll, I'll help you out. And he ran and he went to Minsk. And he told the Jews In schools you know we'll call our kids Boris we'll, we'll get, we'll, get we'll, we'll drink vodka like them we'll beat our wives and they'll love us mm-hmm. now, of course Max Lompol got kicked out of Minsk he had to run for his life out of Minsk now Minsk by the way for many years uh, you think what happened to Minsk Minsk was a city where Ryabiyaka Komnetsky came from Herbauer and Kotler came from Aron Kotler three of the greatest leaders in American Jewry post, post, post-World <coughs> War we were born in Minsk. Minsk was a Torah center. It was wiped off the map by the communists. Minsk at the time was a Torah it was the whole fabric, the rubric of Minsk was off. He kicked them up. Went to Vilna, which we had, had actually had a, a circle of masculine. Even there he was unsuccessful. We went back to Uberov, Yubro gave him a paper. And now he went around. And the paper said that they want to have a rabbinical conference in St. Petersburg, and they want rabbis to come. So at this point, he had a few Shomalichim, because people were concerned that, you know, we'll get to it in a few minutes, in a few moments, when Nikolai I was no one you wanted to mess around with. Just to give an appreciation, at some level, for the Jews, he was worse than a Stalin, okay? He was not somebody you would want to say no to He was then the Tsar of Russia. So he was actually able to get together a rabbinic conference in 1843 in St. Petersburg. Who was at this conference? The greatest misnagdic rabbi of the generation in Russia, or the, the Itzchak of Volozhin, the Itzchak of Volozhin, who was the son of Rabbi Volozhin, who I mentioned had started the, the the great yeshiva of Volozhin, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who was the head of Chabad Chasidus at the time. Not the Menachem Mendel Schneerson who passed away 20 years ago. That was a, a older one, of name was Itzalach Tzadik in the Chabad circles. He was at this meeting. Rabbi Sroll Halpern, who was a from Jew, also extraordinarily wealthy on top of it. And the first fourth person was a person named Petzal Stern, who was the head of the masculine in Odessa. And during this council, Lundhal said, We're going to have to do this, it needs to be. But ultimately, Rabbi Itzalach Alozhen, and the rabbis took the day. And what happened is Lillenthal was able to start an, a, a school system that had no support. So in 1844, a uh, official proclamation by the Russian Tsar was to start an, <coughs> a second set of schools um, primary schools, several secondary schools, and two rabbinical seminaries. seminaries. Most of the graduates the people of people in the school, very few people went, most were poor, ended up converting to Christianity. So much so that Lillenthal left left, realizing it is really the whole focus of it was to get Jews to convert to Christianity. Little then went to America to a city called Cincinnati and became a reform rabbi, former clergyman in Cincinnati. That's a Matthew was about. he he was Isaac Weiss's buddy in, in Cincinnati. This working together of the masculine with the Russian government, which was rapidly Rapidly anti-Semitic, rapidly anti-Semitic, changed all of the equation on the ground. In the eyes of the masculine, it empowered them. It made them much more sure that they can get their agendas across. In the eyes of the masses of religious Jews, they became dangerous, crooked, wicked, and threatening. This Increase the chasm, and as we'll see in the next stage, it would make both sides more radical against each other. Before this, the, this stage, it's worth to say that the, the nickname that the Maskilim were given in the 1840s, 1850s, were the Berliners. In Russia, they used to call the Maskilim Berliners because at the time they had a very heavily German influence, and for the religious groups, being called the Berliner was a pejorative. For the masculine, oh, I'm a Berliner, because remember, Berlin at the time was, this was in the time of Nietzsche and Kant, post Kant, he, Hegel and, and others, it was considered certainly a compliment in their eyes. Right. In 1856, the hated Nikolai I passes away, and Alexander II, who was supposed to be more liberal minded, takes over. And now the masculine are euphoric. They're, they're, this is our chance. he he will give us our rights to be full Russians. And indeed, Alexander II ended the Cantonist degrees, which we'll discuss shortly. And at some level, was more welcoming to the Jews. In 1863, the Poles revolted against the Russian Empire. And it was brutally put down. And one of the things that Alexander II then did was try to Russify. All of the Pales Erich, because the, the Poles had, had, had revolted. So no longer was it okay for Muscians to be German. Who would speak German? We're now Russifying everything, so everything became the emphasis became a Russian culture, Russian life, Russian uh, Ru- or Russian economy, and the push then became for Russia, 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 and. The, even the Jews who were learning in mean, the Yiddish circles or the Russian circles he lost a lot of Jews because once they got to the Russian circle many of the masculine assimilated totally, totally into Russian culture like in Germany like in America today you know you can go from reform to the netherworld to completely like you know most people and even speak to you, oh, this guy is Jewish in Silicon Valley you ask him what does he do in the Jewish community nothing zero his only Judaism is his name So these Russian masculine, many of them completely left Judaism. But there are many who stayed. And what they now tried to do was try to convert, to missionize the rest of Russian Jewry to their point of view. And they found something called the (laughs) Hebert Marble Haskalah Beisrael, the Society for Promotion of Culture Amongst Jews of Russia, aka OPE, the most prominent expression of, were certain people. Now, these individuals hated traditional Judaism. They not only hated traditional Judaism, they hated anything to do with it. Most, one of the most prominent was a person, these people, you know, it's sort like, you know, Noam Chomsky today. You, know, you, you imagine like what they do to Israel. Because they're articulate individuals. They're not, they're not, they were, people who could have spread Judaism, but destroyed Judaism in the process. Amongst the most infamous in Mendelomochos, sofrim, Yaakov Abramowitz, Shalom Aleichem, Yehuda Leib Gordon, Leib Lillenbaum, and possibly worse than was Perish Molenskin. Just to try, give you an idea of Perish Molenskin, the primary disciple of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, who we'll discuss, was the alternate kelp. The ultimate Kelm, Kelm was a city of Lithuania, had the most famous Muslim yeshiva. It was always a yeshiva, 30, 40 students. It was a powerhouse yeshiva. And the alternate Kelm was known for his radiance. He was smiling, he was friendly, he was excited. And especially on Shabbos, he said that he would turn, he would be so excited. He would, be such a, he would see a Jew, Tadras, pardon with a glow in his face. And it was one Shabbos with people looking at him and was glo- gloomy, melancholy. He looked awful. He looked absolutely awful. People were terrified. What happened? What happened? What happened to the altar? He killed well, he was looking, they couldn't understand what happened to him. After Shabbos, they said, what happened to Shabbos? We were so nervous. He said that right before Shabbos, he heard that Peretz Molenskin had died. So, remember, what he said, remember was so upset about? He was the biggest antagonist of Judaism. He said the whole Shabbos I was imagining is Gehenna. He imagining He's his HELO. <laughs> He's imagining what's going to happen to this person who led tens of thousands of Russian Jews to the spiritual grave. And it bothered him so much that this individual died without doing Shuba. And he led Jews to the grave, spiritual grave. Now, in the effort, these authors, Shom Leichem and the Loch you were like Gordon. They tried to wrote in a genre to make, they, they use, I remember when I was young, actually read some of these authors, uh, you know, for the fun of it. Anyway, talk about the, you know, the stuff well, you know, by the way, wrote uh, a famous play called Fuller of the Roof, just in case you didn't know that. Um, so among other things, they criticized traditional education, patterns of marriage, economic behavior, and the actions of leaders. And the genre they did was to, to, to make it into the ultimate evil, evil. So, any stereotypical characters. For example, the Malamid was always in scholastic literature an ignorant, and coarse man, an ignoramus. The Malamid, the teacher, he didn't know anything. He's lucky like he knew an aleph bet. And the community functionary, the community, the religious leader, the lay leaders, he was aggressive in every book. He was violent, temperamental, and the rabbi, ah, oh, a fanatic. Mm constantly in a lot of stricter restrictions. with the rabbi, of course, the rabbi was was, was radical. In contrast, these novels, when he talked about figures of enlightenment, he was a young, brilliant man dreaming, dreaming about a beautiful life of Haskalah, the delicate and young, beautiful woman who had so much potential, whose parents wanted her to marry her off to some yeshiva mother. Oh, poor girl. There was the Moscow who gets into Russian society and everybody loves, everybody cares for. So, like, by the way, you know, we get to America, we discuss it. we look at how American, who created the motion picture industry in this country, it's, it's not surprising mm-hmm. that the Jazz singer was the first movie. Mm-hmm. Right? That Al Jolson is playing an intermarried Jew in his own life, who's able to sit to, to, to the Daven, Kaddish, in the Elo, because... That's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the picture. You know, you can, you can make it. Jazz singer, you can make it in America. They're, they're, so they portrayed it. It's like an American Jew will make their own image. The Russian Jews, if you want to be great, you'll be a Russian Jew who's successful you know, give, give the examples of the Russian Jews who are not that Jewish that they made in the world. But the rabbis got a special place. Oh, they, they really like the rabbis. Because remember I started, the rabbis were the highest of the system. Remember, the Hasidic rebels? they were untouchable. And the Rosh Yeshivas of the Yeshivas, they were all powerful. And the rabbis, the Rebchaim Salavetriks, if you were a brisk, Khaim Salavetriks, your rabbi, well, he's the competition. What do you think Rebchaim Salavetriks had to say about Toskala? He's the one who's going to blast you. And hey, the Malbum is the rab of Bucharest. They went after the of this is in Romania, they went after him, Tooth and nail. Famous. There's a famous story with the Malbim. That somebody they they sent him a picture of a pig. That, you know. So he, so he sent back the, the head of the mas- masculine. So he sent them back his picture. Said thanks for your picture. Here's a mine. <laughs> but they they went after him. They thought, uh, not not the rabbis were the number one target because the rabbis were the ones who the the and they were the head of the, the hierarchy. So they made they portrayed an unbridgeable gap between religion and life. Right? And that the rabbis who interpreted how it's so archaic, they're living in the Middle Ages, they're not contemporary, they're not progressive, they don't understand what's going on in the world, they never left their cave. Right? Basically they think that, uh, you know they don't know what science is. I was once reading uh, uh, someone who's, from a secular paper, like, they're talking about religious Jews. Yeah, they don't know what grass is. They don't know what trees are. I'm like, like who are, are you talking about? Like they, they were describing, it was in, it was in Israel. It was really they were trying to describe a certain community. They don't know what grass and trees are. Like, and do people believe this stuff? They are telling religious because they, they, do, so they make their allies into to, to hermits who were clueless. And they were not contemporary. Lillenbaum had a whole plan that we have to reform Judaism. Right? Much like Lillenbaum, to reform Judaism because... Homeless like reform in Germany, because our halakhic process, you went know, a little bit too far. We to Make it more loo- loosey, kind of like a conservative. Years later, make it more loose, make it more free. He uh, was to, to be part of Russian society. He was unsuccessful. Interestingly, Liliu became one of the heads of the Russian dynasty really, years later. And as we'll see, one of the reasons why the Orthodox in Russia and the secularized leaders would never get along was people like Lilienbaum were the ones who were founding Russian Zionism. That's a different lecture. For years, though, they tried to get uh, traditional rabbis to change, but one of the things that happened is is if you were, you know, there's no question, even in the 9th century, the Shethat Life had much to be desired. There were were things that could have be finessed, there were things that should have be worked out. And there were many even traditional rabbis who could have been honest enough to say there were problems. Many of the problems were induced because they had a very oppressive system. And when your, when your hands are tied and your feet are shackled, there's not that much you can do. You, you were, they were, had all things stacked up against them, as including as religious Jews. But there were people who would have done good changes, but the problem is, is, if the masculine were doing it, we were against it. And the religious attitude became that anything the masculine would be involved in we couldn't be involved two reasons. Number one is we give them credence. And number two is if there's an opening, they're going to say, oh, they really agree with us. Hey, they're, 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 they're on our side. And especially in certain circles, um, in the Hasidic circles in particular, the Maskilim were heretics. And even today, if you, you go to Laurel Park, even say like Lakewood, and you say the word Moscow it's the biggest pejorative. These were people who destroyed Judaism. Who destroyed Judaism. Who took Jews who who, who were God-fearing and made them cynics. Who (coughs) ripped away the Jewish past and gave them no future, as we'll see. By the second half of the the 1870s, it became clear that radical Haskalah reached that end. That is, when the radical Haskalah the, the few people that actually affected in Russia became completely assimilated, and ultimately speaking, it wasn't that appealing because most of what Radical Haskalah was offering was a debasement of traditionalism, of traditional Jewish world. Another thing happened. By the mid-1870s, pogroms spread out. In fact, in 1871, in Odessa, (laughs) the most assimilated city in all of Russia, which was the center of Russian assimilation in Haskalah, it was a terrible pogrom, which meant at the end of the day, even if you dressed Russian, even if you talked Russian, even if you were the latest of Russian authors, you were still a Jew. You were still a dirty Jew. And for all the talk of assimilation just dress like them and talk like them, they didn't get—they didn't let the Jews assimilate. And as mentioned, uh, other Jews, uh, you know, were not taken. We'll go back to what happened with Haskelo afterwards. Now, what was the Orthodox response to Haskelo? So. Haskalah, going back to Glitzer, perhaps the first major opponent I discussed in Western Europe, the first, ever all this time, the last time in Germany, so we're not going to go back to them, was the Chassam Seifer, or the Moshe Seifer Schreiber, who was the greatest rabbi in Central Europe in the <coughs> early 19th century. The Chassam Seifer was a teacher of tens of thousands, and influenced to our days, hundreds of thousands of millions of Jews, he was a godal, a great, great sage in Torah. His works are da- studied daily in yeshivas around the world, world both on the Torah, on, on the Bible, He's a, a commentary. He has a classical book on Shas and the Gemara. His responsa are, are famous. His, um, um, his halakhic psochen are famous. He was the Rob of Bratislavia, which at the time was called Pressburg, which is one of the greatest cities of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he was a fierce opponent of reform in Haskalah. He was born in Frankfurt in 1762, during the Seven Years' War. At age nine, he entered the yeshiva of Rav Adler of Frankfurt, who was Rav Adler, who was one of the great sages of the generation. And by 13, he was so great that Rav Pinnikos Harwitz Horowitz, the Hafla asked him to study by him. At a very young age, in 1794, he became a rabbi in, in Austria-Hungary, Late in 1797, he was the role of Matisdorf, which is one of the seven communities of, Aust- of the seven kehillahs of Bergland And eventually, in 1806, he became the role of Bratislavia in Pressburg, where he <coughs> was the role for 30, 30 years. They so passed away in 1839. He founded the greatest yeshiva in Central <coughs> Europe, which was Pressburg, which educated hundreds and eventually thousands of students. The yeshiva was, in 19. 19- 38, 39 really, was moved by his uh, his great-grandson, the Kiva Sofer, to Jerusalem, where it is to this day. And the Chesam Sofer was the greatest savior in Europe. He was fierce. He made a part of his life to fight against reform and has gone. He had a motto. His motto was, Chadash Aser Min HaTorah. That what is new is forbidden by the Torah. Now, the Chalasim for by the way, in the mathematics, in the astronomy, in the science, what he meant is any innovation in Judaism that's coming from a secular world is by nature possible. is by nature null and void. And any change that took place, he, had, he came in, it's a very funny story actually, the sorry for himself, he would speak out against any change in the masculine and the reform and everything that had to do with them. So one time, of course, the Chassam Sofer was known. He traveled to an inn for Internet, for pictures, or, 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 or prolific. He traveled to an inn. He didn't know who he was. He made Kiddush on Shabbos, this inn, And he didn't say the Pesukim, the verses for Kiddush. And the hotel owner thought he was in Moscow. And he kicked him out of the hotel. He got the Chassam Sofer. So kid, he asked the Chassam Sofer, what do you think is the hotel owner? He said, not the hotel owner, I don't know. But one thing I know, his grandchildren will be Jewish. If <laughs> so he cares so much for those his grandchildren will be Jewish. Psalm Safer had a very strong line. And actually to this day in certain Hasidic communities and even part of the Haredi world, this idea of Khalosh Asr in the Torah is the basic doctrine of, of how they're they, they, they it. Of course, we're not Quaker. They're not, not Quakers. They listen to the phones and that. But innovation in Judaism is inherently suspect. What, what's making you innovate? Uh, what's making you do things? Well, there are certain things that were even the like some Sofra accepted, and we'll discuss them shortly. But why are you innovating? Well, what's making you do things? Is it the New York Times? Is it you know, Thomas Freeman? Is it Maureen Dowd? Is what she says anything anything intelligent? No. But is, is that what's, what's encouraging you? Or is it the Torah? Or is it making Torah successful? The Chesom says, look into yourself. What's making you dress this way? What's making you talk this way? You want to change the way you do Kiddush? Why? And he said that anything, any change is suspect. Chesom Sofer's second wife, his first wife passed away, he died childless. His second wife, he married the daughter of the great, great Galdo of Biki the Eger. He had 10 children, and there are great, 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 Descendants of his today. The Sofer family is well known in New York, in Jerusalem, and in Israel. They're great, great, great descendants. Many of them are very famous. And he died in 1839. In Lithuania, <coughs> besides the Hasidic movement, there was next major come against the, the Haskalah was the Yeshivas. Now, an advanced Torah study at the beginning of the 19th century Was a luxury. Was a luxury. But in 1803, looking at the, the, the current winds of change that were starting to, to blow, Rabbi Chaim Balazhin, the primary student of Milnegon, set, a, a, set up to change and to revolutionize the concept of a yeshiva. What, most days in those days, you go to the, the rabbi of the town, and little groups of people studying the rabbi of the town, and it was a small situation. In 1803, he sent letters to the chief rabbis throughout Europe, asking them to send their best students and, and donations to his yeshiva, which he was going to open in Volodzhen, Lithuania. The yeshiva was later named Eitz the tree of Chaim, named after Eitz Chaim, After a Chaim, the pastor was called Eitz In fact, yeshiva university in New York was originally a branch of Eitz In New York, as an Eitz In Jerusalem, Eitz is a popular name afterwards. Look at source number one. This was the letter he he, he, he wrote. There are those who wish to study and have no financial means to do so, and those who wish to study and are financially able (coughs) to do so, (coughs) but have no teachers to guide them in a true path of analytical study. And they are like sheep without a shepherd, and even though I am unworthy of a crown, it does not truly befit me. Nevertheless, I see a time not far distant and the Jewish people will be without leaders, and the doors of the house of study will be locked. Therefore, do I call all of my beloved brethren to hear the truth, to repair the breach in our wall, to support God's Torah through this yeshiva, with all our might, whether by supplying proper students, whether by providing necessary financial support. And the response was very positive, and the yeshiva within a decade had 450 students, and to get into the yeshiva was very very difficult, and they were supported. Reb Chaim Volozhin was the first one to innovate, sending out Mushulakim. The first, the idea of sending out Mushulakim, which means collectors, to all the towns of Lithuania and Poland to collect for Volozhin. That first time that ever occurred was for the Volozhin yeshiva. That was Reb Chaim's uh, innovation. But Reb Chaim, knowing I changed the yeshiva, he became the first rosh yeshiva. He, he made the style of rosh yeshiva was a leader. He was a teacher. He was a Rebbe. He had analytical stu- studies for, for the students. He, would, he would, it would encourage them. He was a critic. He was a boss. In a sense, he became the prototype Rosh Yeshiva that we have to our very day. And the Yeshiva was outstandingly successful. Almost all of the Rabbis in the 19th century that led Lithuanian, Latvian, Russian, Polish towns were products of Volozhin. But because of its success, of course, it became under the scrutiny of the Russian authorities. And th- in 1879, they really tried to close on the yeshiva unless they had secular studies from 9 to 3. <laughs> Basically, they went to have four secular studies from 9 to 3. And finally, in 1892, the yeshiva was shut closed. So it, le- it was less than 100 years. However, because of the dozens of other yeshivas opened up in its wake. And today, of course... Today, it's almost axiomatic that Orthodox children have day-school yeshiva background. In fact, in America, the statistics are saying between 96 and 97% of Orthodox Jews send their children to yeshivas. It's it's considered everything being equal spiritual death. And where I came from, in the East Coast, if you didn't send your kid to yeshiva, you were out of your mind. That's how you viewed it. That's how strong the yeshiva movement became in the Orthodox world. I mean, that yeshiva not only became an elitist group, eventually it will become a mainstay. If you wanted your children to thrive as Jews, they have to be knowledgeable Jews. You Torah is not just for the elite. You want your children to be from? Send them to yeshiva. You want to, at least a day school. You want your children to be, to be a Torah Jew? You want your children to be a Torah Jew? You want them to, to be able to study Torah? A yeshiva became a requirement. Another thing that, that opened in the 19th century, really in response to the Haskalah, was the Muslim movement. And the Muslim movement, or I think in like a second a books, so they're called the morality movement. <laughs> right? The morality movement. It sounds like you know some Puritan group somewhere going. <laughs> hey, the, the, moral, the Muslim movement. sounds a lot better me. So the Muslim movement was founded by the greatest, the most brilliant sage of the 19th century, Rabbi Yisrael, Lipkin of Salant, Rabbi Yisrael Salander. And he lived from 1810 to 1883. He was a goy, he was a genius of geniuses. He was the, the was, uh, whoever you hear about, whether it's the Selovechik or Bezaledi, or the Yitzhak, or Inspector of Kovno, or the Marl Diskin, he was the greatest of all in learning. But what he's most famous for is not. His academic learning, not his brilliance in Talmud, but for spreading the Muslim. And he's famous for vignettes about his caring about others. Because what Rishul Salantar did is you had to be, work on interpersonal relationships. You had to work on the core of, of Judaism. It was axiomatic, then, according to him, you had to dress nicely, to, to impress people. And he tried to, he actually stole some of the steam by doing that. So, one of the famous stories is the old Kippur night, the waiting for Rishul Salantar. Everyone's ready. It's Colnage ready. Where's the rabbi? Where's Rasul Salanter? We can't start the davening without him. They start looking through the town. And he find him with a baby. Apparently, a mother had left her baby to go to Colnage, right? <laughs> left her baby behind. The baby's sitting there screaming. And as the Salanter is walking to Colnage, he hears the baby screaming. He looks in the house. No one's there. So he sat down with the baby. playing with the baby. And they come right to the cell, phone, where are you? That's the baby crying. How can I go to call the train? Another famous uh, uh, story, and this is his leadership. You know, when, they, when the candidates, he, he would stand up to anyone and everyone to, to make sure that the kids weren't stolen. And he pushed that all of the yeshiva should study ethical works. But not only study, but focus on it. Focus on it. Work on yourself. Work on being a holy Jew. Learn Mus'r, Get your Shammai and get fear of God because if you do just do Judaism because you're in a cultural Judaism you live in a shtetl and everyone around you is orthodox that's not going to make you a God-fearing Jew you got to study Musr. you've got to work on Musr to work on davening you've got to study Musr to work on being a, a friendly Jew a loving Jew a caring Jew you got to work on Musa to notify to fight against Taskalah, not to be a wimp because you've got to stand for Judaism and then primary manual of the Muslim movement became Islam, the path that justice a work by Ramoshe Moshe Khan Lutzato, the great 18th century Kabbalist. All the works became popular as well. The work I was teaching recently, Tomo Devaro, 16th century work by Rav Moshe Devaro. <clears throat> what Rizal Salanter tried to do, it's funny because reform Judaism, and Haskalah tried to change Judaism, saw Salanter tried to change Jews. Remember going way back I said, that Ju- Judaism is perfect, Jews are not. Judaism is perfect, Jews are not. Jews have uh, mistakes. We have plenty of things we can improve on. Even today, there's no perfect system for the Jews. There's no community that can say it's perfect. But Jews can always use improvement. Judaism, if it's done correctly, is the best thing in the world. It's God's Torah. So we're so smart that we're to change Jews. Now, at first, we we're called Am Or Or, We're stiff people. Jews get suspicious. Who is he trying to change the yeshivas? Why is it so much a focus on the musur? And even if Yisrael was criticized by Orthodoxy, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? But ultimately he won the day. And musur became a part of the curriculum in, all major, in the vast majority of of yeshivas. Certainly lectures today, and been to my lectures, I think there's a Musar component. Um, musur is a reality in the Jewish world today. The most famous, although we can use more of it, <coughs> the most famous was the yeshivas were Kelm, as I mentioned, Novardok, which was all opened in 1896 by the Rabbi Joseph Novardok, and ultimately established 70 branches, mostly in Poland. And Slobodka, in 1884, started by Rabbi Nassim Svi Finkel, which later moved to Hebron in Israel, was destroyed in Hebron, and now is a branch in Jerusalem, and in Bnei Brak. Other yeshivas was the Mir Yeshiva, which was a small yeshiva in, in 1815, but became great in 1921, the 19, beginning 1900 when the ultimate Slobodka, Rabbi Finkel, sent his son Rabbi Eliezer Yudel Finkel to Mir to build up the yeshiva, Tells, which was founded in 1875 in Tell Lithuania, now has a branch in Cleveland, Chicago. Uh, Riverdale, New York, as well, and the city of Telstone in Israel. Of course, there's a Telstone branch there as well. And Slotsk, one of my favorite yeshivas, Slotsk, I'm sure everyone heard Slotsk, was founded in Slotsk in 1896. When the communists came over and moved from Slotsk, Russia, to Kletsk, Lithuania, in 1920, they escaped over the border. Kletsk, the was yeshiva was of Israel Meltzer, and when he left to Israel in 1925, his son-in-law, Arnold Kutler, took over, and today, Kletzk is called Lakewood Yeshiva, it's the biggest yeshiva in America, and Lakewood, New Jersey. That was Slutsk, Kletzk, Lakewood. That, the Yeshiva movement, took in the Moser movement, and so now, not only Yeshivas, did you have the Rosh Yeshiva, you had a The Mashkiach Mashkia was in charge of giving Moser, and making sure the, children, the students in the Yeshiva had, were on time to davening, we're, we're, we're not only academically excellent, but we're spiritually excellent as well another response to Haskalah because if the yeshivas had power and the Muslim would had power, what about the girls? I remember I once met a Ger HaChassad he told me this, that before Beis came to his town, his father and all his brothers remained religious and all his aunts, the older Ger all of the ants became secular. All of them became actually Zionists, secular Zionists, not, not religious Zionists. And it was Beis Sarah Schneer was living in Krakow, and she's looking around, and she sees Jewish girls without any education. My grandmother, so I've, both of my brothers grew up in Poland, one of my grandmothers, Hasidic background, as you can imagine, she went to public school, she told me she remembers her friends making fun of her father. They were come to visit her at school. Polish friends. What is that person? She was embarrassed of her father. <coughs> I mean, what I mean, she going me. When she saw her father, she used to run away. She wanted her friends to make fun of her. And they went to Poland. So my, my other grandmother, her father, established the Beisakov in her town in, in, in Poland because she was so concerned about her. Beisakov came because Sarah Schneer was a, was a seamstress in Poland and she said she was making dresses for Jewish girls, she saw that they had no soul, right? Here she was giving them a physical garment, they were lacking education. So with uh, the approbation of the greatest Sadiq and Greek Sages of the generation, the Chabad and the Gerardova, in the beginning of the 20th century, the Yisaka movement started to have mass Jewish education for girls, and that of course, took root today, every Jewish girl, you know, had you know, the big in New York, Israel, now the Yiddish Academy in our own Bay Area, um, or or, or Florida. its it's part of, it's part of the world, but that was a response to a secular world which was encroaching on Judaism. As mentioned, more than uh, anything, perhaps what Askala was not successful was because no matter what you did in Russia, you were still a Jew. You were still hated. So just to go back for a moment or two, Tsar Nikolai I probably was the cruelest, most brutal of any of them. In 1827, (coughs) in the the third year of his reign, he had a decree called the Cantonist Decrees, which meant he took boys for 25 years of service. Nikolai wrote in, in a memorandum, the chief benefit is to be derived from drafting of the Jews it is certainty that it will move them most effectively to change their religion. And Simon Dubnow, was a famous Russian Jewish historian, he also wrote that the, ba- the barrack was to serve as a school, or rather a factory for producing a new generation of de-Judaized Jews who were completely russified and, if possibly, possible, Christianized. So the Cantorist decrees, or in 1827, took Russian Jewish children... At young ages for 25 years of service. And they would beat them daily unless they prayed to, with the, the priests. They were taken away from their parents at a young age. Officially, it was supposed to be from 12 to 18 year olds, but most of them were eight or nine years old. And the reason is because is they were kidnapped. They couldn't get quotas. And ultimately, what happened is most of the boys that were taken to the campus. Who were kidnapped from the poorest families, where they were orphans, like, at young ages, and they were thrown into the, into the Russian army. The effect of this was so traumatic on the Jewish community, because they were put a guard. that. Some communities did things which are unspeakable, because they were forced, oh, when you think back to how the Nazis forced Jew, the Jew, Jewish councils to pick the Jews to go to the death, that's really what they forced certain communities to do they had to pick the kids, and ultimately what happened is, people were kidnapping kids because their own kid was going to go. They didn't want that, so they would take the kids who had no protection, no one to watch out for them, take them and throw them into the Russian army. One of the things that we saw a went screaming town to pound about were these kind of things going on. And if it wasn't bad enough for this, which was, which was, which was taken away in 1856, there was government-sponsored anti-Semitism. For example, just jumping ahead, in 1903, there was the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was written by the Russian secret police in 1903, which, according to many counts in history, is the second biggest seller wow. after the Bible. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion is more... And probably the Korean I can take that back. Imagine, I mean, they're counting in the rest of the world. <coughs> um, supposedly, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a secret meeting. Now, it was based off the 1897 First World Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. And it was a secret meeting that every hundred years, Jews get together to plot the world. That that all the rabbis gather gather together in a cemetery. And they all sit and figure out, how are we going to rule the next hundred years? Right? How will we rule? It's such a preposterous book that it only could anti-Semitic be so irrational to read it. Well, guess who spot loved these books? Well, I don't have to tell you a surprise, Adolf Hitler, one of his favorite books, quotes in my How about Henry Ford? Henry Ford published the books, sponsored 500,000 copies of the book to be written. By the way, they the interview Nazis, the American army interviewed Nazis, and there were many Nazis who said that the number one influence on them was Henry Ford to know what kind of anti-Semite he was. He was awarded by the Nazis in 1938 a, an award for helping German, German culture. And his Dearborn Independent constantly was filled with anti-Semitic stuff. He was sued in 1927, so he stopped to an extent. But he polished the protocols, he published other anti-Semitic creeds as well. Egyptian President Gamal Nassar, in fact, in our world today, <coughs> the protocols were constantly sold. King father of Saudi Arabia, and if any of us want to buy it, you can buy it. Go to Amazon, Amazon.com, BarnesandNobles.com, Freedom of Speech. And it's on, on the internet, and anyone, can, anyone can get it. Besides the protocols, that all designed, there were state-sponsored programs. Now, why would the Russian Tsar have state-sponsored programs? Simple. Because as the 19th century ends, at the time of Alexander III, and when it got much worse, the government was under duress. And you need scapegoats. And the Jews were the best scapegoats. So they started blaming the Jews for everything. And more and more pogroms were happening, especially when Alexander III took took over. Not only did he have pogroms, but in the main laws in the 1880s, he said as follows. One, it is henceforth forbidden to produce to settle outside of the cities and townships. He started limiting again where they can live they couldn't register property, they couldn't do commerce on Sundays or Christian holidays. Look at source number two. Expulsions, deportations, arrests and beatings became a daily lot of the Jews, not only of the lower class, but even of the middle class. And the Jewish intelligentsia, the government of Alexander III, waged a campaign of war against its Jewish inhabitants. The Jews were driven and hounded and emigration appeared to be the only escape from the terrible tyranny of the Romanod. In fact, Slobodka, which removed one of its branches to Jerusalem when they moved, the altar of Slobodka said, Why? He asked him, Why are you moving these we from Lithuania to to uh, Israel? He said, Because we feel the, feet, the ground burning under our feet. Feel the ground burning under our feet. The Jews started to feel the ground burning under their feet in the late 1880s 18, 18, in Russia. 18, 18, when Alexander III died, succeeded by Nicholas II, who was the last of the Romanovs, whose inflexibility and incompetence, quite frankly, brought about the Russian Revolution. And he had his number one advisor at the end of his reign, who was, was was a witchcraft, this guy named Rasputin, who was, I mean, it's like basic, oh, I don't want to get into our president, but it's like the, the basic equivalent of, of you know, um, having some, some astrologers come to the president, giving presidential advice, any president, and giving the advice how to decide on the stock, on taxes, how to decide on, on government policies, and you're listening to some, some astrologist, you know, you, you took from downtown with eight tattoos, that's who he had helping him out. Helping him out. And in 1903, there was a famous program called the Kishinov program, uh, which received a lot of international attention. Uh, why did it receive so much international attention? Because Western Europe was horrified. Western Europe, Germany, was horrified. And France was horrified. We'd see 40 years later, they wouldn't be so horrified. But in 1903, they were still horrified. They were far horrified what happened. And the Tsar said, uh, you know, let, told the police to w- stand by and do nothing as over 180 Jews were slaughtered in the middle of the street. This is source number three. I'm not going to read the whole source. This is Chaim Nassim of uh, Bialik, the famous author. It's in his piece, The City of Slaughter, describing the kitchen of pogrom. Arise and go out to the city of slaughter into its court you are winding the way. There with thine own hand, touching the, the eyes of thine head. Behold, on tree, on stone, on fence, on mural clay, the splattered blood and dry brains of the dead. Right? the Jews were slaughtered in broad daylight as the Russian police watch Russians go from house to house in Kishina and kill Jews. Okay? And between 1903 and 1907 there was a general unrest in Russia. There was a revolt in 1905 and that time there were 284 pogroms specifically against Jews with 50,000 casualties if you believe at this time in Haskalah, <laughs> become they Russian! They'll love us! You know, that was long forgotten. Nobody thought at that point that Haskalah was the answer to the Jews. What was the answer then? We'll see in the lecture ahead. But what Haskalah did accomplish, it, destroy, it did not accomplish its goals, but it destroyed the fabric of traditional Judaism. So that by the 1880s, after decades of rabbinic Judaism being satired, made fun of the genre of, of the Ben sovereign, Jews became more invested in outside things. Now we're open to the Bund. In 1820, no Jews were born to the Bund because it was it was not a religious organization. Communism, secular Zionism, which was secular Zionism in its root, was anti-religious in the beginning, or non-religious at best in its beginning. Other, uh, anarchism, socialism and everything else but religious Jew- Judaism the Maskilim gave way many of them to, to secular Zionism which as mentioned would cause a rift amongst many of the orthodox and we'll get to that in the last lecture to the, in the beginning of it but more than anything else with the Maskilim, that it was break down a religious culture so that you had Jews like Trotsky come you had Jews like Zinobov is, it, is Gregory Zenovial. I have too many Russians here getting to say the names. You had Jews like Leib Kamada come up who had zero Judaism. The unbelievable thing is that they had no nothing. Most of these Jews had been lot, left Judaism in the eighteen fifties and eighteen sixties. And you had Jews who communism would be the worst thing for their, their own selves ultimately. They would shoot themselves in the head and one of the first things that the communists did in the Yvette would become come against the rest of these Shivaists shut them down because they had to raised on a diet The traditional Judaism was out, was out to hurt them. And we got to get rid of it. And even though Lenin said no more anti-Semitism, <coughs> Russia is before on Russia will have no more anti-Semitism. The first thing that the Russian Jews were accomplished was shut down, the last yeshivas, the last, the Baisakos, that's why the yeshivas had to run out of Russia, that's why it was a Shkacha, it was divine providence that Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia were under them. One other result of the severe pogroms government-sponsored sponsor, anti-Semitism throughout the later parts of the 19th century, especially after the murder of Alexander II in 1881, one other strong result that happened was emigration of Jews. As we mentioned, the ground started to burn under the fear of the Jews, and between 1881 to 1914, 2 million plus Russian Jews left Russia. The vast majority would come to the United States of America. Many of these Jews have lost their Judaism already in Russia because of the masculine so It set up American Jewry. But the coming of America of 2 million Russian Jews, and in general, American Jewry, that will be the, the topic of next. Week Thank you very much.